John 8, chapter, sorry, John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30, and uh, that is found on page 796 in your pew Bible. Would you please stand out of reverence for the word of our Lord? John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he, will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Many years ago, uh, I visited New Zealand. And uh, I guess I've always been uh, a little bit adventurous, and some would probably say uh, foolhardy. But, uh, but one of the things that, that New Zealand is famous for is subterranean caves, and uh, and I'm generally not one just to to explore things the normal way. So um, what I did is with a guide, um, repelled through a small hole in the ground, down into into a deep cave, and uh, in that cave there was actually a, a a little creek that actually that that ran pretty pretty quickly um, through. Um, through the cave, and we, we put on our, our headlights and, and began to explore this cave, and, uh, and we did so by, by kayak. So it's known as, as black water instead of white water kayaking. This is black water kayaking. And the, the only light, when you get deep into the cave, the only light that you can actually see is, uh, is when, you, when you turn out your light is what's known as glowworms. And glowworms are, they're little insects that, uh, that, that, emit bioluminescence. They actually have a light that, that comes from their bodies. And, and what, they, what they do is they hang little 
two or three inch long sticky threads, kind of like a spider's web, down just below where, where they're sitting. And, and moths and bugs are attracted to the light of their bodies and fly into, into these, these webs and are then eaten by the glowworm. And dotted through the ceiling of the cave is, is just, it almost looks like stars. It's, it's really beautiful. But uh, as, we were, as we were traveling along, I let the guide and the, and the person I was with go on far ahead of me, and then I, I turned off my headlamp. And for as long as I could, I, I let the, the, the current bring me along, bumping into rocks as, as I was going. And this, this was blacker than any darkness that I'd ever seen to that point. And it really, my, my heart was pounding, it's even pounding as I think about it, not knowing what, what was going to happen. And then I, I finally um, turned on the light. Thankfully, I didn't, I didn't bump my head on, on some low-hanging rock. But even as dark as that was, and as dangerous as that was, I did something that's probably even more dangerous and more foolhardy. I was in Mexico. This is a little bit more recently. And uh, Mexico is also famous for caves, but these ones aren't underground. These ones are actually underwater. And you go through a, through a small opening um, with your scuba gear, and you begin to, to dive and travel um, into the cave. And, and I'm a little bit claustrophobic. You'd never know it by the, the silly things that I do. But, but it was with, even with the lights, it was scary. But there's beautiful stalactites and stalagmites, and the water is so clear that it's, it looks like you're actually in air. It, almost, it looks like there's no water. The water is, is absolutely crystal clear. And in this, in this cave, um, I saw some with eyes, but they're actually deeper in there. There are, are fish that are called a blind cave tetra. And it's interesting that evolutionists use this, this fish as, uh, as an example of, of, an, of evolution, but it's actually um, an example of, of God's creation. These, these fish um, have, they actually have no eyes. Now, their relatives do have eyes, but, but over, over time, when they were, they were deep into the cave, it actually became a survival advantage for them not to have eyes because with this pitch black, it would be bumping into things and, and would be damaged the eyes and it would be at, would be at risk. But, so these fish have, have no eyes. They are, are perfectly suited to dwell in, in these deep caves. But again, as, as I want to do, I, I turned out my light. And this was like, this was really dark. It was absolutely pitch black. And uh, and one of the one of the guys in our group actually began to panic and was uh, and was had to be calmed down by by one of the guides. But the darkness that we're going to be discussing this morning is darker than any New Zealand cave, and the danger of that darkness is immeasurably greater than smashing your head on some low-hanging rock. The darkness that we're going to be discussing this morning is darker than any Mexican cave, and the danger of that darkness is immeasurably greater than running out of air and becoming trapped. The darkness that we're going to be discussing today is a spiritual darkness, and the danger that we're going to be discussing is eternal damnation. But like glowworms and blind cave tetras, the Pharisees were living in that darkness, or more accurately, dying 
in that darkness. But what made their plight even more dangerous was the fact that they thought that they were living in the light. They considered themselves to be children of God when they were in fact creatures of darkness. Now, such is the case for many today. They consider themselves to be part of the church when in fact they still belong to the world. This week we're going to see the contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees and those who follow in their footsteps. And then next week we're going to see the contrast between the disciples of Jesus and the citizens of the world. If you remember, with John chapter 8, John introduced a new facet of a subject that he's already been highlighting, that of correct judgment. And this serves as part of the theme of the rejection of Jesus and the ensuing division that, that comes. After, when Jesus comes, he will necessarily bring division. Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. And the division that Jesus brings will come even to families as some receive and believe Jesus and, and others reject him and rebel against him. Now this theme of, of rejection of Jesus and division began actually in John chapter 5 as the crowds and the religious authorities exercised wrong judgment about who Jesus was and what he was doing. This morning, John continues this theme of wrong judgment and rejection, and it happens soon after the incident of the woman that had been caught in adultery. You remember, the, the religious leaders came to Jesus trying to trap him, saying, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now Moses commanded us in the law to stone such women. So what do you say? Remember last week I talked about how although the law did require stoning under the Old Covenant, stoning was the penalty for adultery. But Jesus knew their hearts. They weren't concerned about obedience to the law. They weren't concerned about upholding God's justice. So Jesus didn't even answer them. He simply bent down and wrote in the sand. And when they persisted in questioning him, he silenced them as he stood up and pronounced the verdict. But the verdict wasn't against the woman, it was against them. He said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus was demonstrating that they were unqualified to judge this woman because of their own sin. They were also unqualified to judge because they were judging by the wrong standards. Jesus had told them in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So in their self-righteousness, the Pharisees had failed to consider their own standing before a holy God. It is only the one who has had his sin forgiven that can offer mercy to another. It is only one who has been given the righteousness of Christ that will be able to, to deal with sin in another rightly. And it is only one who deals with his own sin ruthlessly that will be able to deal with the sin of another gently. The Pharisees were not committed, submitted to God's will or God's word so they did not judge rightly in anything. 
They didn't judge rightly about the woman, and they didn't judge rightly about the identity of Jesus. So Jesus declares to them in no uncertain terms who he is with three I am statements. And in the light of Jesus, their darkness is exposed. In verses 12 to 20, he will reveal, I am the light of the world. In 21 to 24, he will reveal, I am from above. And in verses 25 to 30, he will reveal, I am he. More accurately, simply, I am. So first point, I am the light of the world, verses 12 to 20. The section begins with the famous statement of Jesus, I am the light of the world. Now these words would have had a powerful effect on his hearers. This is the second of his I am statements. The first was after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now to us it comes as no surprise that Jesus would also say, I am the light of the world, because we know that God is light, 1 John 1.5. Jesus likely chose this moment to say this because the Feast of Tabernacles had just ended. And the, the four huge oil lamps that had been there as part of the worship had just been extinguished. But I just want to, uh, to make the point here that, that I was challenged during my study that, that we can't rely on these facts because these are extra-biblical. Now, it is very likely that these, these four huge oil lamps were an integral part of the, the Feast of Tabernacles, but the Bible doesn't teach that. So we can't rely on them. We need to be very careful whenever we use any reference that comes from extra-biblical material, whether it comes from, from Josephus or archaeology. Our only and ultimate authority is the Word of God itself. However, since the feast was a celebration of God's protection and provision for the Israelites in the wilderness, it's, it's very possible that such lamps would have been used to represent the pillar of fire that God used to lead them by night. And that it also very likely could have represented the presence of God in the temple. But regardless of the timing, light is a common metaphor throughout the Bible. And Jesus chose this moment to show that all of that light pointed to him. In Genesis 1, God dispelled the darkness with the word, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And John intentionally hearkens back to Genesis 1, right at the beginning of his gospel account in John 1.1, when he declares, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to say, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see typologically how light points to Jesus Christ. What began as, as shadowy images grows in clarity and intensity into the coming of Christ, the light of the world. 
The pillar of fire in Exodus 13 led the children of Israel into the promised land. In what is clearly a messianic prophecy, Isaiah 9-2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The Lord says of his suffering servant in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And in an end times prophecy in Isaiah 60, 19 and 20, it says, The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the Lord will be your glory. Your sun will, will no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. We sang about this this morning. This reaches its culmination in the fulfillment of all things in Revelation 22.5. The light will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. All of this is about Jesus. He is the light of the world. So Jesus continues. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It makes sense to follow the light. Walking in darkness is dangerous. Turning your light out in a cave is dangerous. But the light that Jesus brings is no mere physical light. He brings spiritual light. And so in a way immeasurably more powerful than for the children of Israel in the wilderness, walk in the light of Jesus and you will never walk in darkness. You will have the light that leads to eternal life. The psalmist says that, that God's word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Do you want to walk in the light? Walk in the light of Christ. Walk in the light of his revealed word. So are you walking in light? Are you walking in the light of Christ? Are you still dwelling in darkness? The Pharisees revealed their hearts by challenging Jesus, saying, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, this reaction makes sense, given the stinging reproof that Jesus had just leveled against them a few verses earlier when he had shown that, that they were unable to bear witness against this woman who had been caught in adultery because of their own sin. So now they're questioning his right to bear witness in favor of himself. It's like they're saying, you think you can use the law against us? We're going to use it against you. The law did prescribe in, in that a case could only be settled on the testimony of two or more witnesses, Deuteronomy 19.15. But the Pharisees missed Jesus' point completely. 
Jesus responds that if he did bear, if he did bear witness about himself, his testimony would be true. And he appeals to his heavenly origins. His authority came from the Father. Now, this really shouldn't have been nothing new to the Pharisees. He'd taught them this before. He said in John 5.31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And in verses 32 to 47, he proceeded to show how John the Baptist bore witness of him, how his works bore witness of him, how the Father bore witness of him, and how God's word bore witness of him. There is no one more trustworthy than Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness of Revelation 1.5. He is the measure of truth. In a court of law, when someone puts their hand on a Bible and swears to tell the whole truth, nothing but the, tr- the whole truth and nothing but the truth, they are swearing on his testimony. They're swearing on the book that is all about Jesus. But even still, even though if anybody could have the authority to bear testimony about himself, Jesus could, but even still, in obedience to the revealed law of God, even still he appealed to someone outside of himself. So again, here in John chapter 8, he appeals to his heavenly origins, and he appeals to his heavenly Father. He says in verse 14, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I'm coming from, or I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. Jesus had the authority to bear witness about himself because he knows whereof he speaks. If somebody claims to be a a witness of a crime, but wasn't at the place where the crime took place, how could they ever claim to be a witness? So if, if somebody say that, that says that they witnessed a car accident, but then proceeds to talk about how at the time of the accident, they were sitting in a coffee shop across town, how could they possibly ever have the authority to bear witness about that accident? But Jesus is saying, I have the authority because I have been with the Father. I am coming from the Father and I am going to the Father. But by implication, the Pharisees who had not known the Father have no authority to judge whatsoever. He turns the tables on them in verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, although the Greek word krino, which is translated judge here, can refer to condemnation, the context shows that it has a different sense. Here it refers more to finding fault. And the Pharisees do this all over the place. And when they judge, they do so by human standards. Jesus doesn't ever judge that way. They were considering him to be merely a Galilean peasant. But Jesus isn't saying here that he never judges, but that he never judges the way the Pharisees do. As the Pharisees understand judgment, Jesus doesn't doesn't engage in that. Jesus is judging their judgment. 
So he's not contradicting himself in John 9.39 when he says, For judgment I came into this world. Nor is he contradicting himself when he says he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world in John 3.17 and 12.47. His primary mission in his first incarnation was not condemnation, but salvation. And he just demonstrated a few verses earlier when he forgave the adulterous woman instead of condemning her. And interestingly, the Greek word there is katakrino, which has a more narrow semantic range. It refers specifically to the pronouncing of a sentence after a determination of guilt. But even without having to pronounce a a condemning judgment. The very presence of Jesus meant condemnation for those who are walking in darkness, for those who hate the light because their deeds are evil. We know that Jesus does judge. In fact, he does so in this very passage when he says to the Pharisees in verses 21 and 24 that they will die in their sins. Again, he means that he doesn't judge the way the Pharisees do by merely human standards. In verse 16, Jesus shows the kind of judging that he does do. It is always correct, and it is always from an eternal authority. So he refers to the, to the law of the Pharisees, the, the, the one that they had just tried to use against them, that at least two witnesses were required. In this case, Who are the witnesses? The witnesses are God the Father and God the Son. Because these two witnesses are doing the judging, he has ultimate authority to say who he is. Verse 18, he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. No human witness No other witness of any form could ever lay claim to that kind of authority, especially the Pharisees. The Pharisees had never known God. They had rejected Jesus' witness about himself, and now they reject Jesus' witness about his Father. And so Jesus casts judgment on them. He says, If you knew me, you would would know my father also. Now he's going to say something similar to Philip, one of his disciples and a decidedly more friendly audience in John 14, 7. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, 15. See the Son and you see the Father. Know the Son and you know the Father. But in rejecting the Son, the Pharisees were also rejecting the Father. With verse 20, John provides the place and the time. The place is specific. It's the treasury. And the Pharisees would have loved to have him arrested. But remember, they'd already tried that once before in John 7.30 when they sent the, the temple police after them. But their, their schemes came to nothing because his hour had not yet come, and those same authorities actually came away impressed by Jesus. Now, Jesus would eventually be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and handed over to the Pharisees to be crucified 
and killed at the hands of lawless men, Acts 2.23. But nothing could thwart the predetermined timing of God's plan of redemption. In verses 21 to 24, we have this, the second I am statement from this passage, where Jesus says, I am from above. After telling the Pharisees his origin and destination, he tells them their origin and destination. First, their destination in verse 21. I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Again, he's already been down this road with them before. In John 7, 34, he told them, You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. However, now he pronounces the verdict against them. They will die in their sin. They had rejected the light of life, so they would die in darkness. Earlier, they thought that when Jesus said that, that where he was going, they couldn't follow, that he was going to preach to the, the Jews who were scattered among the Gentiles. This time, their accusation is even, is even more ridiculous. They understand that he is speaking of his death, but talking among themselves, they wonder about the means of death. So they ask, will he kill himself? Now, suicide would mean a, a fracture of the Sixth Commandment. They were so eager to discredit Jesus as a lawbreaker. And Jesus does lay down his life, but not in sinful rebellion. He does so in loving obedience to his heavenly Father. And in just six months' time, it is the Pharisees themselves who would be the instrument of his departure. What does Jesus mean when he says, you will seek me? He means that after his departure to the Father, the Pharisees will go on searching for their Messiah, but their search will be in vain. He was the only Messiah, and they would kill him. There's only one plan of salvation, but, reject, but they rejected it. The Son is the only way to the Father, but they ignored him. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But the Pharisees rejected and killed him. They will recognize the Messiah when he returns as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. But they're going to hate him then just as they hate him now. In verse 23, Jesus goes on to tell them their origin. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus and the Pharisees were as different as day and night. Jesus was from above, they were from below. Jesus was not of this world, the Pharisees were of this world. They were revealing their worldliness by their actions and their speech. And John the Baptist had made this point in John 3.31. When he who comes from above is above all. Sorry, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
D.A. Carson explains that the contrast is not between a, a spiritual and a material world, but between the realm of God and the realm of his fallen and rebellious creation. There are only two possible origins, only two possible destinations, and only two possible allegiances. The kingdom of God or the world, heaven or hell, God or the devil. There is no in-between. They are completely and utterly separate. Jesus and his followers are citizens of heaven. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father, and his children are growing in that likeness. The Pharisees were denizens of the fallen creation, more like the devil than God. And by their behavior and their words, they demonstrated their citizenship. Just like glowworms and blind cave tetras show where they live. Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So now Jesus expands the verdict as he repeats the sentence. He tells them they will die in their sins, plural. They would wallow in all of the ugliness and the filth of their sin, waxing worse and worse until their bitter end. But even in that judgment, even in the midst of that horrific judgment, there is a ray of hope. The light shines in the darkness. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he. Now, unfortunately, the NIV blows it here by rendering the phrase, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Literally, the Greek says, I am. That's it. I am. Unless you believe that Jesus is the I am, you will die in your sins. Whoever does not believe who Jesus is stands condemned. They're condemned already. So finally, let's explore his meaning and the implications of that profound statement. I am. Verses 25 to 30. The Pharisees are dumbfounded, so they ask him in verse 25, Who are you? Jesus replies, Just as I have been telling you from the beginning. It's what he's been saying all along. He is the I am. He is Yahweh. Jesus uses this phrase to describe himself three times in this passage. In verse 24, as we just saw, in verse 28, as we'll see in a moment, and most powerfully in verse 58, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then we'll examine that one more next week, but for now, look at the reaction of the Pharisees in verse 59. They took up stones to stone him. They understood. They finally understood what he was saying. He was calling himself God. So they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. But Jesus is God. He is God the Son, and he has the authority to make that statement. 
His point made, he now uses his divine authority to level judgment against them again in verse 26. I have much to say about you and much, much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus testifies that the world is evil and that the world hates him for it. John 7, 7. And God is true. Compared to the world and everything in it that is deceitful and false, God is true. We talked about this last summer in our series on the attributes of God. The last attribute that we discussed is the truthfulness of God which Robert Raymond explains that by affirming that God is infinitely and eternally and unchangeably true, the Westminster Catechism declares that he is logically rational, ethically reliable, and covenantally faithful, that he has always been, is, and always be unchangeably so. Essentially, it means, essentially it means that God is faithful. God is faithful in who he is, God is faithful in what he says, God is faithful in his promises, and God is faithful in his judgments. The one who is true can always be trusted to judge perfectly. The son's judgment is true because the father who sent him is, is true. Jesus speaks what he has heard from his father. The Pharisees, on the other hand, could never be trusted in their judgment. They were wrong about the adulterous woman. They had demonstrated their wrong judgment in their rejection of the Son. And now they're demonstrating that in their failure to understand that Jesus was speaking to them about the Father. Verse 27. The point had already been made quite clearly. Jesus patiently taught these things again and again and again. And the Pharisees, in the hardness of their hearts, continued to reject him again and again and again. In John 5, 16 to 30, that whole passage is about Jesus and his unique relationship with the Father. Turn there, please, to John chapter 5. When Jesus says in verse 17 of John chapter 5, my father is working until now and I am working. He understood, the Pharisees rather understood that he was calling himself God. Verse 18, making, in calling God his own father, he was making himself equal with God. And then Jesus proceeded in verses 19 and following to show them exactly who he was. Now, when I was a school teacher, there, there, would, be, there would be students that, that I, I could teach things to again and again and again. And they would, would look at you and they would nod their heads and you would ask them if they understood and they said yes. But when you ask them about it five minutes later, it was like they hadn't heard a word. And I'm embarrassed to admit, but the same thing happens with Jane and me. She will, she will say something to me, and I will give an appropriate response. Sometimes it's a few seconds later. But then it becomes evident a little bit later that I really had no idea what she was saying. 
Now, husbands, I'm sure that that doesn't apply to you. But even in that, it, it, betrays, it betrays in me a, a sinfulness that is more concerned and more consumed with what I am doing at that particular moment that I'm not going to take the time to listen to my wife. But it was so much more evident of the hardness of the Pharaoh's heart, of the, of the Pharisee's heart, that Jesus could say to them again, and again, and again, who he was. But they would reject him. Jesus was shining the light. He was giving them an opportunity to turn from their sin and be saved. But because of their, their spiritual blindness, because of their hearts of stone, because they had not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they couldn't see. And many of them would never see, even to the point of eternal damnation. We talked about this earlier, that, that some of them did see. After the resurrection, many of the, 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 the priests did come to Jesus. They did find faith in Christ. And one of the first Pharisees that we see this happen to is Nicodemus, who I believe we'll see in the kingdom. That Nicodemus, one of, of these men, had had his heart changed by the sovereign God. But still the Pharisees rejected him. They rejected it then, and they rejected him now, and they would keep on rejecting him right to the cross. So Jesus said to them in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. They won't understand who Jesus is until they had lifted Him up. Now Jesus had used this term before in John 3.14, where He says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority. So that's the wrong verse. John 3.14 And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus here is, is offering salvation. When he speaks in John 3, he's speaking of the, the bronze serpent that Moses hung from the pole in Numbers 23 that the children of Israel could look upon to be freed from the curse of the venomous snakes. And that served as a symbol pointing to Jesus who bore the sins of his people. And Jesus will use the same term again in John 12, 32 and 33, where he said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die as he was lifted up and hung from that cruel Roman cross. But there's also a dual meaning here. Jesus is speaking to his crucifixion, but he's also speaking of his exaltation. That his death is also the means of his departure to the Father. The cross reveals 
the Son for who He is. The Son does nothing on His own authority but submits to the Father perfectly. The Son does what is always pleasing to the Father. He is utterly and completely obedient even to the point of death. And the Father is always with the Son, verse 29, and never leaves Him alone apart from that dark time on the cross. But the, the cross is also the means of Jesus' glorification as, as it is the pinnacle of His obedience to the Father, even as the Father pours out His wrath on His Son and turns His back on Him. We read in verse 30, that as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. But again, we see the division that Jesus brings. Even as Jesus is pronouncing condemnation on the Pharisees, it seems that some believe and are saved. But this has happened before. In John 2.23, Many believed in his name, but Jesus knew what was in their hearts. That faith didn't last. And John doesn't tell us what happens of, of this, this new faith here. Will this faith last? Now many people will look back on a time that they, they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or raised their hand or signed a card saying, I believed in him. I believed in him. But it's not about then. It's about now. It's about the future. I've been grieved again and again to find people, people that, that I've, I've known and walked with thinking it was in, in Christian fellowship who have turned away from the faith. Their faith proved to be false and fleeting because it didn't last. It didn't last. It wasn't real. So what about you here this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is he? Do you believe? Are you believing right now that Jesus is He? Not talking about something that you did or said or thought in the past, at this very moment. Where does your faith lie? Are you trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, or are you more like those hard-hearted Pharisees that rejected Jesus to the end? Brothers and sisters, he who calls you is faithful. So by his grace, remain faithful to him. Were you fast bound in sin and nature's night? And did God for you reveal a quickling, quickening light? Did you awake the dungeon filled with light? Did you rise and follow Jesus?
are you walking with Jesus today? Let's pray.